280 characters. If you post on Twitter, that's all you get. 280 characters. That's probably one of the reasons why it's so popular, that the, the, the postings are short and sweet and to the point, but it's also one of the reasons that there are several miscommunications and, and such shallow reasoning on that social media platform. Because how do you give a detailed explanation of a nuanced subject in 280 characters? You can't, right? All 280 characters is at best gives you an opportunity for a summary of thought, and at worst, it gives you a distorted caricature which other people can pick apart with their 280 characters, right? And, and I mention that because we should be so thankful that Paul had more than 280 characters as he's communicating his thoughts in this letter to the church in Rome, that, that he not only develops his thought and his description of the gospel that we've been covering, but he's able to address the nuances. He's able to address the misconceptions. He's able to address the misunderstandings that could come from that as well. We've been, as we've been looking and, and learning through this book, that, that we've been seeing how Paul has been laying out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that although we were sinners, although we have rebelled against the God who created us, shaming the God who loves us, God loved us so much, he provided a means of salvation outside of ourselves. He provided us the righteousness that we could never earn on our own. We could never earn that righteousness from the law. So we are justified or declared righteous, not because of anything we do, but purely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Right there, it takes 341 characters just to say that. And then he goes on to chapter 5, and, and, and we, see in, we saw last week in chapter five that, 5 that Christ defeated sin and death, and he offers this victory as a gracious, free gift of righteousness. Even where sin abounded under the law, Paul ends chapter 5 by saying, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is how amazing grace is. Paul is helping us understand how amazing grace is so that we would sing the song, grace that is greater than all of our sin. But you see, when we understand that point, when we understand the, the emphasis and the weight that put, Paul is putting on the grace of God, then we start to understand why Paul needs to shift gears here in chapter 6 because such an emphasis about God's grace can be misunderstood or it can be misinterpreted, right? When, when Paul says something like, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, Paul knows how some might misunderstand this or how people might object to this point about God's grace. Paul has encountered critics who distort his teaching and they, they, people would say that Paul actually encouraged people to sin because the more they sin, the more grace they receive and more grace received, the more that God is glorified. Paul probably also is thinking of Christians who just misunderstood this truth about grace in the gospel. Christians who think that, well, if Jesus paid for all of my sin, then I can just keep on sinning because Jesus just keeps forgiving. But Paul then would ask in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? How should we respond to God's grace? How should we think about God's grace? Should we really say, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, here's the question. Here's the misconception that Paul's getting to. Does grace, does God's grace really condone sin? That's the misconception he's addressing here. If we truly understand grace in Christ, then how should we as Christians think about our sin? Should grace make us lazy about sin? Does grace give us an excuse to continue in our sin? If we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, does then our obedience to God, does that even matter? 
In fact, if, if God's grace is glorified in our sin, isn't God more glorified if we keep sinning? The answer is clear. Paul, Paul uses the strongest language he can. By no means, or other translations, absolutely not. May it never be. God forbid. Maybe modern vernacular. Come on, man. What kind of question is that? N-O spells no. Paul gives the strongest possible rejection he can give to that question. And he's telling us that we as Christians not only shouldn't think that God's grace condones sins, we can't think that God's grace condones sin. Let me say that again. Paul is trying to emphasize we not only should not think that God's grace condones sins, but if we understand the gospel, we cannot think that God's grace condones sin. His answer is clear. No, no. But Paul then wants to explain why. And that's what our text is going to do this morning. He's going to give us these reasons why God's grace does not condone sin. He's going to help us make sure we understand this point. That's what he's explaining in verses 1 through 14 here. So, so let's look at these expl this, his explanation. First, Paul explains that grace does not condone sin because, first of all, because of our, de our death to sin's power. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So as we looked at just now, should we as Christians continue in sin or keep on sinning or persist in sin with the purpose that thinking that such sin will multiply God's grace? Absolutely not. Paul completely rejects that line of thinking. Why? What's his reason? This is where we're getting into the heart of this. Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is using the imagery of death here. Think about it. What can dead people do? Not much, Rot. There you go. <laughs> dead people can't do much, right? You, you go from eating and drinking and talking and walking and breathing to nothing, right? That's about as dramatic of a change, uh, life change as you're ever going to experience, right? And, and that's how we as Christians are described in relation to the power of sin. We are dead. And dead people don't keep on sinning because they're dead. All right, we're tracking with a thought here, right? But here's the important question we should ask. How are we dead? What does Paul mean by this, right? Yes, we understand we've heard that we're dead to sin, but what does he mean? I mean, obviously he doesn't mean that we are physically dead, right? It's a metaphor of death there. It's, and it's not that just that we're dead to sin in God's sight, in the sense of some people would say, well, we're dead to sin because God has forgiven us, so he's counted, not counting our sin against us. All that's true, but that's not the context of what he's talking about here. What he's going to go on to say is that we're dead to sin because we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that there's a spiritual death to sin that, that comes from our union with Christ. Let's look how Paul explains this. Look at, look at verse 3 here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So he starts by saying, do you know? Which kind of implies you should know, right? Notice the as many or the all of us language here. This is a basic understanding of who we are as Christians, that there's no way, other way to be in Christ except to be baptized into his death. But here's my question. Why does Paul all of a sudden talk about baptism here? 
In all of Romans so far, baptism hasn't come up. And all of a sudden, he says, don't you know that baptism, you, you, were, you died with Christ? I mean, based on what Paul said so far, doesn't this make more sense? If he had said, those of us who believed in Christ Jesus were united with his death? That would seem like to fit the context more. Or we were buried with him through our faith in Christ into his death. That, that would seem to fit his, his idea of what he's going for from chapters 3 and 4 and 5. But that's not what he says. He talks about baptism here. And, and the reason I think that we have, pro, we have struggles with that is because when we think about baptism in our context today, we often in our Christian experience, tend to separate baptism as some extra part, extra thing that happens in our Christian lives. We get saved, we pray the sinner's prayer, we start going to church, and eventually someday we'll get baptized. But in the New Testament, Paul had no conception of, of things working that way. That he had Paul, if you ask Paul, saying, Paul, you know, I've been a Christian now for three or four years, and, you know, I've been going to church, and I'm reading my Bible. Um, should I get baptized? He would say, I've never heard of an unbaptized Christian. Paul just had no conception of one. Not that you can't be a Christian and not be baptized, just they just didn't do it, right? So when Paul talks about baptism, baptism is the sign and the symbol, kind of the packaging for the whole conversion experience. So when Paul talks about baptism, it's, very, it's linked to his thinking about repenting and believing and confessing as Christ and Savior and Lord and receiving the Spirit and joining the church, that all of that is this picture of this new life in Christ. So in a way, when you see baptism in this passage, you can substitute the word conversion and get the same meaning of what Paul's trying to mean. All of us who have been converted, all of us who have been saved, all of us who have been given new life by Christ Jesus, that happened by his death. You know, as we think about baptism, that brings an important point that for us, it's possible to both overestimate baptism and to underestimate baptism today. You see, we can overestimate the meaning of baptism when we talk as if baptism is required for salvation. That's not what Paul's saying here. Some people would look at this, and, and that's how they would interpret the passage. But we are not saved by baptism. Paul is saying that we are saved by our union with Christ. That in baptism is the symbol of that. The baptism is symbolizing our dying with Christ and rising with Christ to new life. That's why in, in the following verses, he's going to talk in different metaphorical language. But he's saying that, that baptism and our salvation, they're distinguishable. They're, they're two, they are two different things. They're distinguishable. Baptism isn't salvation. Salvation isn't baptism. So we can overestimate baptism. But at the same time, Paul would say they're distinguishable, but they're really inseparable. That baptism is the sign that you've given your life to Christ. They're distinguishable, but inseparable. So we can underestimate the meaning of baptism when we start to separate it away from that conversion experience. You see, in the Bible, what is the sign, what is the symbol, what is the demonstration that people gave that they were repenting of their sin and turning to Christ? It wasn't an altar call. Altar calls aren't bad. You just don't find them in Scripture because, the, because altar calls have taken the place of the biblical sign of repentance and faith. The, the, the biblical sign of, 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 you know, the physical act of praying the sinner's prayer, again, it's not wrong to do, but it's not the main sign that's given in Scripture. What is the main symbol of salvation in Scripture? Baptism, right? That, that, is, that is the biblical picture of dying and rising with Christ. That is the declaration that, that, that you are with Christ. 
In fact, if you are a, a Christian here, you repent of your sin, and you, you're, you've placed your faith in Christ, you love Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and you've not been baptized, we would love to help you follow the Lord in obedience in, in, in baptism. So please don't leave this morning without talking to a pastor or elder. We'd love to tell, talk to you about how you can follow Christ in obedience with baptism. Because for Paul here, baptism is a picture that symbolizes all of what conversion means. When we're united with Christ in his death. That's what Paul means by that preposition into. That we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into his death. That that there's a spiritual participation with Christ in that once for all death that's pictured by baptism. When we are immersed with him under under the water, it's a picture of being immersed with him in death. As Christ conquered sin by his death, we also died to sin's power. But we didn't just die with Christ. Paul says, therefore, we were then buried with him as well. Now, why, why would he go on to, I mean, there's death, and if you're dead, you get buried, right? So why does he have to mention both? Well, well think about it. What does burial symbolize? Why, even though, even though you know someone's dead, even though you're mourning their loss, When you go to the burial, there's something especially poignant about that, right? There's something extra hard-hitting and emotional about that. I mean, you know they're dead. So why is it that just that act of burial brings so much extra emotion? Because burial confirms and validates what really occurred, that they're really gone, right? So Paul's saying, that we're not only, we not only died with Christ, we are buried with him. There's objective proof that we have died to the power of sin. Now, I hope you see what Paul's focusing on here. When Paul's talking about baptism, he's not causing us to be introspective and thinking about my baptism. It's not a thinking inward about baptism. It's a looking outward about baptism. He's saying that our baptism should make us be thinking about and pointing our eyes towards Christ and what that baptism symbolizes and what Christ has done. And that sets up his main point. What is the purpose? Why have we participated in Christ's death? So that, for the purpose that, in order that, look at halfway through where we left off there in verse 4. In order that, with the purpose that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's Paul's main point. What is the purpose? Why why is it so important that we, we realize we've participated in Christ's death to sin? In order that we may walk in newness of life, that we may experience a whole new way of life. You see, we need to understand that God's grace not only forgives us, God's grace not only frees us from the power of sin, God's grace then transforms us to give us the power to live new lives for the glory of God. See, and what's the evidence that we have this transforming power? Notice the comparison that Paul makes there in verse 4. As sure as Christ was raised from the dead, that's how sure we should be about having and living this new life for God. You see the comparison there? So, So Paul might ask you, how sure are you Christ raised from the dead? I hope pretty sure, right? That's why we're here today. That's why we're worshiping of of the risen Lord Jesus. Well, as sure as you are that Christ raised from the dead, that's how sure you should be that that Christ did that so you could live this newness of life. And why is this the case? Look at verse 5. For or because this is the reason we walk in this newness of life. 
For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we've been united with Christ participating in death to the power of sin, then he said there's a certainty that we're going to be united with him in resurrection. You notice that Paul, though, is using a future language there, which is interesting. He, he talks about we will certainly be united. We shall certainly be, uni- be united. He's talking about the future. Paul is talking about a future resurrection from death, after death, to eternal life. But he's talking in a way that that future resurrection that we're going to experience after death is exerting power now, that we already get a taste of what that resurrection is going to be like. It's like the the resurrection life in the future is breaking in, and we are experiencing it now, so that the evidence of that future life coming then is the evidence that we're starting to live like it now. And this is Paul's point here. Paul's point is that we as Christians, we can't live under the power of sin. We shouldn't think that we can live under the power of sin. Why? Because when we look and think about our baptism and our conversion, they remind us that the power of sin is broken because we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And so if Paul were here, he'd ask us, right? Where do you see this newness of life? Do you see this newness of life the way that you think about the way that you go to work tomorrow? and the attitudes you have towards your employer, and the attitudes you have if you're an employer towards your employees? Do you see this newness of life in your family and those that you live with? Do you see this newness of life in the way that you act towards your parents, children at home? Do you see this newness of life in parents and the act, ways that you act towards your children or towards the others that you live with at home? Do you see this newness of life in your pursuit of holiness and your devotion to God and your love for Christ's people, the church? Is there any newness, and why not, if there's not? Because, Christian, you have died with Christ, and you've raised with him the newness of life. As sure as you are that Christ raised from the dead, that's how sure you should be that he's given you this new life. So grace does not condone sin because we have died with Christ to sin. And then secondly, we see that we also have freedom from sin's mastery. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul is just doing a similar description with a different metaphor here, right? He's talking about being dead to sin, but from a different perspective. We've died with Christ because our old self, and a lot of Bibles put a footnote that the literal translation there is old man was crucified with him. Well, who's the old man? Don't look around the room. That's not who he's talking about. When when Paul talks about the old man, he's talking about this in context. We have to remember what Pastor Bob talked about last week at the end of Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says all of humanity is in relationship with one or two people. They're in relationship with the old man, Adam, or the new man, Christ. Everyone's either under Adam or under Christ. So that we're either in relationship with the one man, Adam, following as Adam's children in bondage. Adam's children are in bondage to sin and death. Adam sinned and all of his children then were in bondage to sin and death. Or we're under the new man, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who gives us this free gift of righteousness, who frees us from sin and death. So what Paul is saying is that we need to think that our our relationship to Adam that we used to have, that that we're in bondage to sin and death, all that we were prior to our conversion, the very identity of what we were before our salvation, all of that was nailed to the cross with Christ. 
We were crucified. All of that was crucified with Christ. With what purpose? Again, Paul just gives a description. He gives a purpose. He gives a description. gives a purpose. Here's the purpose. In order that, verse 6, our old man was crucified with Christ with the purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here's why it was important that we die, we are crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. You're saying, yes, what does that mean? If you have a Christian Standard Bible or a New International Bible version, I think that, that, that the translation there helps where it says the body ruled by sin. See, before Christ, we were under Adam, which means we were ruled by our sin. We were dominated by our sin. Every part of us was affected by our sin. And when our old man is crucified with Christ, then that bodily rule, the rule that sin had over us, it's brought to, no it's brought to nothing. It's done away with. It's completely destroyed. Sin's rule over us is brought to an end. And it's interesting, the, the, the language that Paul uses here in the Greek is emphatic. Christ didn't just defeat sin. Christ utterly annihilated sin. The match didn't just go to the scorecards. It was a first-round knockout. Not even a contest there. Christ demolished the rule of sin over us. Again, he gives a purpose. So that, or with the purpose that, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's where Paul's, Paul's driving, right? The old man was crucified. It, why? What's the purpose of that? So the body of sin would be brought to nothing, would be destroyed. Why is that important? Because all of that means that we are no longer slaves to sin. You know what Paul's doing here? He, he's giving a metaphor of slavery. You probably picked that up. But did you pick up who the slave master is? It's not Satan. I think Satan, there's some implications and there's larger theological concepts there. But who is the slave master that Paul gives here? We are enslaved to who? To sin. Paul is personifying sin. Remember that he's speaking to an, probably a lot of a, a illiterate audience and he's, he's basically giving this metaphor, this imagery, and he's personifying sin as this slave master called Mr. Sin. Then he says that all of us were enslaved to Mr. Sin. The rest of Romans 6, he's going to be contrasting. You're, either, you're, you're always a slave to someone. You're either a slave to Mr. Sin or you're a slave to Mr. Righteousness. And, and he's giving this, this, this kind of personification language. He's saying, Mr. Sin was your master. Mr. Sin, you were always under his authority. You were enslaved by Mr. Sin and you, you were stuck in his dominion. Everyone born of Adam, everyone born under the old man is born a slave to Mr. Sin. You know, it's interesting. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he compiles a list of righteous behaviors from different religions and different philosophies. And he says, it's interesting that there's a lot of commonality between them, right? That, that, that you see from different uh, worldviews and philosophies, there's some commonalities of things don't do, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. There's some uh, commonalities of things you're supposed to do, that you're supposed to live with justice or fairness or equity, that you're supposed to treat others well, do unto others as they do unto you and so forth. And, and Lewis points out it's interesting that there's such commonality, and yet we look at the world, and they have some, by co God's common grace, they have some commonality of truth, of what, how we're to live, and yet no one actually lives that way. There, there's an understanding of what truth is, of what, 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 what is right and what is wrong, and, and our history is a history of misery. Because even though by God's common grace people understand these moral truths, no one actually consistently lives by them. No matter what government they have, no matter what leadership they have, no matter what religion you find, 
that it always ends in misery because no one actually lives by the truth that God has implanted in our hearts. We know what we should do. We, we know the consequences of misery if we don't do that. And we end up doing what we shouldn't do, and we don't do what we should do. That's the history of mankind. Why? The Bible would say that's the evidence that we're slaves to sin. That no matter how, how hard we try, we can, we can clean ourselves up for a little while, but eventually we consistently end up being controlled by our sinful desires, by our sinful hearts. Now, maybe you're visiting here and you're saying, I, I don't know about that. Maybe you're visiting here and you're not a Christian. First of all, I want to say welcome. We're glad that you're visiting with us this morning. You're welcome to join us anytime. But, but maybe you're here and saying, I, I'm kind of skeptical about this claim. I, 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 I'm not a slave to anyone. I've always made my own choices. I've always been, been free. Well, well, let me ask you. I, I, I love what one pastor challenged on this. He said, have you ever tried to just live by just one rule? Maybe just take the golden rule. And you're just going to try to perfectly, every moment of every day, for the rest of your life, always honor the golden rule, right? The golden rule is do unto others as they would do unto you, right? Have you ever just to perfectly do that with all of your strength? So that all, every day, every moment, that your focus is that you're always meeting the needs of others. You're never thinking about yourself. That, that anytime someone else you see on social media, and they get the vacation you want, or they get the promotion you want, or they get the whatever, whatever you want, right? Because you only post things on social media that are good, it seems like. You never, you never feel envious. You never feel, you never feel uh, um, jealous. You only ever feel rejoicing for them, right? The, the, when, when you see people get the success that you desire, you never, you never feel bad about that. You're always just happy for them. I mean, you, you, you may look at certain instances when we do that, but you're saying we do that perfectly every moment of every day for our entire lives. And no, we can't even keep that one thing, that one rule, which we all know is a good rule. Because we're in slavery to sin. Because no matter how hard we try, we always fall back into our selfish tendencies. It makes me think of this, the, the so-called apology by the World Series champion Houston Astros this week. They were... They gave this press conference because they were caught cheating. And it was interesting that one of them said, well, we're just human beings, and human beings make mistakes. That's why I say it's a so-called apology. It's not really an apology. Now, I would also take difference with the, the word mistakes, but that the point he's making is the point I'm trying to say, that we recognize that all humans fail, all humans sin, all of us, which is Paul's point, that all of us are in slavery to sin. <clears throat> But you need to know that Jesus died with the purpose that we would no longer have to be in slavery to sin. You see, that, that, that God, that we didn't just sin against people, that in our sin, we are sinning and rebelling against the God who created us. We are shaming the God who loves us. But God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place as our substitute, to pay for our sin and to set us free from sin. <clears throat> he rose from the dead to demonstrate the payment for our sin and the victory and, and freedom we can have in him <clears throat> to prove that he has defeated sin and death for us, for everyone who would repent and turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith. So if you would like to be free from the power of sin, 
if you would like to, to know how to have your sins forgiven, if you would like to know how to be reconciled to the God who loves you, if you would like to know how you can have assurance of eternal life and of heaven, please don't leave this morning without talking to someone about how you can turn and repent from your sin and, and place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards, and I'd love to tell you about this gift of freedom in Christ and eternal life that you can have. That's Paul's point here. And let's look how he continues. Look at verse 8, where Paul continues to say, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul's moving from dying with Christ to living with Christ. If we've died with Christ, and he's implying the question, have you died with Christ? If you're a Christian, then you have died with Christ. Then we will also live with him. The one always includes the other. And here's the reason. Look at verse 9. We have life in Christ because death was not the last word for Christ. So death is not the last word for us. In his resurrection, Jesus has defeated the powers of death and sin. So now Jesus lives in a state where death is no longer possible for him. So that means that we who have died and raised with Christ in his resurrection power, that death has no mastery over us as well. We live in freedom from sin, and we will live forever with Christ in freedom from death. You see the point? He's making that same point over and over and over through this passage, that we have died with Christ, we have raised with Christ, and that means we are freed from sin's power. He's just saying it in a bunch of different ways. But you may be sitting there, and you may have the same question that I have on this passage. It's a crucial question. If the rule of sin has been defeated, if Mr. Sin has really been defeated, if he has no power over me, then how is it that we as Christians sin at all? right? If this is true, then why do we as Christians still sin? If, Christ, if, if sin's power is completely removed from us, his mastery has ended, his dominion has ended, then why do we still sin? Notice that throughout this passage, and I've tried to highlight it, Paul is talking about the already and the not yet. Let me give you a couple examples. We already walk in newness of life, right? But he says that our resurrection of the fullness of life is not yet in the future. That not yet resurrection is evidence that we're already starting to experience it already in the newness of life, but the newness is not the completeness that's not yet to come. You see that so far? It's the same thing with death, right? We already are free from the sting of death because we have the promise of eternal life through Christ's victory over death. So we are free from death, but we're still going to die right? I hope everyone's saying yes. That's going to happen. See, because the freedom from death, we already have freedom from the sting of death because we have the promise of the not yet victory completely over death we will experience with him forever. It's, it's, the not yet guarantee is giving already experiences of that. And it's the same with sin. We already experience Christ's victory over sin so that, yes, sin does not rule us. We are not controlled by sin but we still do sin. We still sometimes listen to sin and obey sin, Mr. Sin, even though he doesn't control us anymore. It's not until the not yet experience of heaven we're going to experience the perfection of never sinning again. 
You see, what has been shattered is not the presence of sin in our life, but the mastery of sin over us as believers. Let me say that again. I think this is important. That what has been shattered, what has been destroyed, is not the presence of sin. The presence of sin, the temptation to sin, and the ability to sin, that is still present. But what has been destroyed and shattered is the mastery of sin. We don't have to sin. We may fall into sin, we may give into temptation, but it's not because it controls us anymore. We are free from sin's power and mastery and dominion, but we're not free from sin's presence until we're at home with the Lord. That's why in the next few verses, Paul is going to exhort us then to live in the freedom he says that we've already had through Christ. That sin is still going to be a struggle for believers in this life, even though the rule of sin is already broken. Because as Christians, we are not free from the presence of sin. We battle the presence of sin, but we're able to battle it because we are free from the power of sin. We're free from sin's tyranny, from its mastery and its dominion. My brothers and sisters in Christ, here's what Paul wants us to walk away from this with. We need to know in our minds, in our hearts, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under its rule. We do not have to sin. We are not under the rule and reign of Mr. Sin. Christ has given us the freedom from that. But I know that there's some people here this morning, surely in a group size, who don't feel that way. There's probably people here that, that you say, I, 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 I hear you, I hear Paul, but I you're struggling with these life-dominating sins, and you feel, you feel like you're being controlled by your sin. Maybe you feel like you're being controlled by your anger. You don't want to respond that way. You don't want to react that way to people. But sometimes it's almost like you just can't control yourself. Or maybe you're addicted to pornography or some other immoral behavior. Or maybe you're, you're reliant on alcohol or reliant on marijuana and you need them just, just to, to get by and so you're relying on them for your life. Or maybe you're constantly overcome by your, your anxiety or your fear. And, and here is the message that God has for you this morning through Paul's inspired letter to the Romans. God wants to encourage you. The first thing that Paul's doing here is he wants to give you hope. God is starting not with, here's what you need to do, but here's what Christ has done for you. He's saying, you may not feel it right now, Christian, but if you are in Christ, you have been set free from the power and rule of sin. You may have a hard time seeing it. You may have a hard time feeling it. But if you're in Christ, he's saying, you need to know that that's true for you. It may seem to be ruling over you, but in truth, you're free from its power. You might not be living in the freedom that Christ purchased, but as certain as Christ rose from the dead, that's as certain as he freed you from that power. So you need to be encouraged, my friends. As sure as we are about Christ's death and resurrection, that's how sure you can be about the hope that God offers you in the experience of freedom from sin's rule. And then along with that hope, along with the encouragement, God wants to help you. God wants to help you by instructing you how to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased. He gives hope and then he gives help. And part of that is what we're going to see in the next couple of verses. That the, that the help is that Paul wants us and God wants us to start to live in a way of what Christ has already done. He's saying, be encouraged. This is what Christ has done. Now by the power of the Spirit, let's start to live like it. 
But I think there's a broader message in Romans. Remember that this message in Romans was not just written to you individual Christian, and you individual Christian, and me as an individual Christian, but it's written to the community of God's people as a church. And as we start to, to see that the argument of Romans go forward, we're going to see that none of us are meant to battle these, the, the, the temptation of sin and the presence of sin by ourselves. God didn't just set us free from sin and just leave us wandering in the wilderness saying, good luck with that temptation thing, right? That God freed us from sin and set us into his body with many members that are needed to, to, to help us battle sin. He has set us into his community. He has set us into his church where we are to carry each other's burdens as we are being restored from these sinful ways. None of us were meant to live out this freedom and to experience this freedom and to battle for this freedom on our own. So, so here's my encouragement for you. If you are here this morning and you are battling one of these life-dominating sins, you need to find someone who can carry that burden with you. You need to, to find someone this morning that you can trust someone in the church who shows spiritual evidence of knowing God and walking with Christ, who's going to respond to you with truth and with grace and, and, and be determined that you're going to talk to him, that you're not going to hide your sin anymore, that you're going to let someone carry your burden with you and help restore you to the freedom that Christ has purchased for you in his death and resurrection. In fact, if you're here and you you know that, that God is using this and, and pulling on your heart right now in this. I, I just encourage you, pray in your heart silently right now that, that God would help you this morning to stop hiding your sin. Stop hiding it from, 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 from everyone else in your life. And think of someone right now that you're going to talk to, that you can trust, that's going to help carry that burden before you leave church today. And, and I'll be praying for you as you would step out of the darkness and into the light and allow start someone to help you start to live out what Christ has already done for you. Because grace does not condone sin. Because we have died to sin with Christ. And because we have freedom from the mastery of sin in Christ. And because of those things, Paul says we need to live with this victory over sin's control. In these last few verses, Paul changes from talking about our identity in Christ to giving us directions about obedience to Christ. He, he's switching from the truth about Christ to commands from Christ. Theologians will often describe this change in the Greek verb moods, where Paul changes from the indicative verbs. Those are verbs of fact. He's giving verbs of fact in the first 10 verses, and he switches to the imperative verbs. Those are verbs of commands. So he's changing from the facts about Christ, who you are in Christ, to commands of now how do we live in light of that. So in a way, Paul is telling us, here's how you become who you already are in Christ. Or in that already not yet theme, maybe he's saying, here's how you become what, what Christ has done and who you're, you're become what you're already becoming. You're already becoming what you're becoming. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's okay. Because he starts to give us here four commands that in light of our death to sin, in light of our being united with Christ, death, resurrection, he says, therefore, or so, look at verse 11. So, therefore, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Notice the command there. There's a bunch of words on the page, but what's the verb? What's the command? Consider. Consider. 
So what's the action word? If this is a command, it's something that we're supposed to do. What is it that we're supposed to do? The action word is consider, to think, to evaluate. Think about yourself. Evaluate yourself. Paul says the first thing that needs to happen if we're going to live like what Christ has done is we need to have a mental shift. We need to mentally think about ourselves differently. We need to get in, into our heads that we are really dead to sin, that we are really are no longer controlled by Mr. Sin, that we need to get out of our heads that I have no other choice because that, that we, are, we are now free. Because as sure as Christ rose from the dead, that's as sure as we have freedom from sin's power to walk in newness of life. But that's a huge transition. That is a huge mental shift. That, that mental shift is as significant as, as, as going from death to life. So Paul is saying you need to train yourself. You need to train your thinking to think in light of this new identity in Christ. Paul's using to, 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 to go further in Paul's slavery image here. You know, you think about all the slaves that were freed after the Civil War, and they hear they're free. They have the, the status now of freedom. But I'm sure it took time for that to really sink in, right? To really understand what that means and to really start to react emotionally and re react in, in ways they lived and responded in, in, in their lives to live out that that's really true. But they had to first get that in their heads, and that's like us. We were slaves to sin for so long that we need a whole new way of thinking, that our thinking needs to change, that when we are battling temptation and sin, we have the thinking of, I don't have to do that, and I don't want to do that because I'm a follower of Christ. Our thinking needs to change, but not just our thinking. Look at verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so a lot of English, I think all English translations use this let language. That let language is difficult. We tend to think of it as permission, right? I guess I'll let you do this. I guess I'll let... Uh, you know, not let sin do this. I'm not going to give it permission anymore. But this is actually a command. This is a verb here of a command. What he's saying is, don't live anymore like sin rules you. Don't live like you're still ruled by Mr. Sin. And it's interesting, contrast what he's saying there back with verse 6. Look at verse 12. Now look back at verse 6. Seriously, look at verse 12, look back at verse 6. Compare the two of them. In verse 6, he says, this is already done. It's already accomplished. The rule over sin over your body and over our thoughts and over our emotions, that's already been destroyed. We're no longer enslaved to sin. It's already done. Done deal. Now verse 12 says, yeah, done deal. So now do it. You see, because of what he's already done, he's saying, yes, that's true, but now you actually have to go live like it's true. The victory has been won. You just need to appropriate it and live like it. And so that's what Paul's point is here, that as Christians, we need to live in this, we need to think and then live in this freedom that Christ has accomplished for us, free from the rule and the reign of sin. That is true, so we need to then go live like it. Now, how do we live like it? Look, look at Paul's description about how we live like sin no longer rules over us. He's giving us a, a, two pictures. He's giving us a negative picture, contrast with a positive picture here in, in, in verses 12 and 13. These picture, pictures both describe someone bringing everything they have 
to serve their king. All their members, all their instruments, all their weapons, all everything that they have to give, they are giving before their, their king, their master, their lord. This is the picture that could be used of a military general bringing his weapons and laying them down before the king for the king to use all his arsenal as he will. This is the picture of a servant bringing all of his tools before his master, his lord, to, to use all of his tools and all of his giftings as his lord wills. But the difference between these two pictures it's the same picture. The only difference is the person that they're serving. You see that? They're, they're parallel pictures. It's just the difference of who they serve. Do we submit our members to Mr. Sin for his purposes of unrighteousness? Say, no. We don't do that anymore because we're free in Christ. We're not underneath sin's, Mr. Sin's rule anymore. As Christians, because we've been brought forth from death to life, everything we have, all of our members, all of our instruments, all of our gifts, all of our moments, everything we do and everything that we are and everything that we have, we use and submit to God for his purposes of righteousness. That's what it looks like to no longer let sin rule over us. So, so when, we, when we use our hands at work this week, we're no longer using them for the purposes of personal fulfillment or selfish advancement. But we're thinking, how can I submit what I do with my hands and with my mind this week each day as I work, how do I do that and use that for God for his purpose of righteousness? And I'm not just talking about I need to, to quit and go become a missionary. Maybe the Lord's calling you to. But wherever, God, wherever you are, whatever God's call, placed you, whatever you're doing, how do you use that for the glory of God? Our tongues are no longer used to tear people down. Whether it's tearing people down that are they're physically around us or tearing people down on online platforms. But that, that our tongues are then, how do I use that to build up and to encourage and to give grace to those who hear me? See, when we died to sin and raised with Christ, we experience this complete transformation. We have a whole different purpose because we serve a whole different master because we're always going to serve someone. It's either Mr. Sin or Mr. Righteousness. It's either sin or God. So all of our desires, all the parts of our lives, everything that we have, we serve the Lord with because we've been brought from life, from death to life. And then look how Paul ends the passage. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I love this. After all these commands, Paul ends with a promise. Sin will, not, will have no dominion over you. See, why are we able to obey? Why is it this week when we start to battle sin and we, we, we start to work to, present our, to live as we really are and present our bodies and our members as, to, to God? Why are we able to do that? Where is the strength and the power that comes from that? Even our obedience is a gift of God's grace, is a gift of God's power. So when you're struggling with sin, here's what Paul would remind you. You need to be reminded of God's promise. As the New American Standard Version would translate this, sin will, sin will not be master and rule over you. Why? Why is the case? For or because, he said, here's the reason, you are not under law but under grace. He's, he's doing a full circle here, back to his first point about grace. That we don't live in the time of the old covenant under the Mosaic law. That time when Israel failed again and again and again. They, di they didn't keep the law because sin ruled and reigned. We live in the new covenant era where God's grace actually gives us the freedom that we need from the rule of sin. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has kept his promises, the promises he made in the Old Testament to write the law in our hearts and by his grace to give us the spirit to help us 
live out that freedom by the power of the Spirit. And so what Paul's saying is that this, this era of grace, it's not second best. That when we think about God's grace, God's grace is not only God's plan to, to save us, not only God's plan to, to declare us righteous, God's grace is the plan to give us the motivation and the power for obedience and holiness. In fact, what Paul would argue here is that our motivation to a holy life, our, our motivation to obedience, we're going to have so much more uh, ability for obedience and, and holiness from grace than the law could ever provide. Because grace frees us from the rule of sin and turns us to focus on Christ. You know, as I think about how to sum this up, I, 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 I really liked the illustration that the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones used that I think sums up exactly the, what's going on in this passage. Jones would ask us to imagine two fields in the British countryside. And around each field, they were surrounded by high rock walls that no one could get over. And, and Lloyd-Jones says that we all start in the first field. We all start in the field that's ruled by Satan and sin. And we had no chance to get over those walls to escape that field. We were completely enslaved there. We had no choice but to obey sin. We were mastered by sin. But God in his grace reaches down and takes us out of that field ruled by sin and sets us into the next field next door. It's a field ruled by Christ. And, and, and this is the, 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 such a huge change in our position because we have a whole new relationship with sin. Because we're no longer in sin's field, sin no longer controls us. Sin no longer has, has rule over us. It no longer masters us because we are now in Christ's field. But, but Lloyd-Jones would point out, and here's Paul's point too, sometimes we still hear sin calling across the wall. We, we're not enslaved to sin. We're not under sin's rule. We're in Christ's field, but we still hear that call of sin from that field where we used to live, calling us to do the things that we used to do. And sometimes, not because it controls us, but just out of habit, we still may choose to obey sin's voice, even though we really don't have to. But we need to realize that by God's grace in Christ, we, we no longer live in that field. Sin no longer controls us, no longer has dominion over us. So we can overcome sin's call by moving farther away from that wall and by moving closer and closer in, to God and presenting ourselves to him. And as we do that, as we move farther from the wall of sin, as we move closer to God, that, that call of sin grows ever, ever fainter. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the hope and the encouragement that you give us in your word. Lord, of, of, to remind us of, of who we are in Christ and what he has done for us and that we are free from sin's rule and we are free from sin's mastery, that we are dead to sin, that we no longer have to live in sin because of the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Father, I pray that, that we would be encouraged by that. Father, I pray that you would help to renew our minds to think and live in such a way. Father, I pray that we would not be those who would look at grace and, and let that be an excuse to continue in our sin, but they would look to grace as the power that's freed us from the power of sin so that we may live as unto you, that we may do that for your glory and your good. In Jesus' name, amen.